Well, good morning, y'all. It's so good to see you today. How's everybody doing today? Good. You look good and you sound good. Thanks for singing well. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. And I know for some of you it may be strange that I introduce myself when I stand up here. There's a couple of reasons why I do that. My responsibilities at the church take me back and forth between both of our campuses. So on any given Sunday, I could be here in Tulsa or I could be in Owasso. And sometimes my responsibilities put me on the platform where you see me. And sometimes I'm behind the scenes where you don't. And that might be a little bit more dangerous. And so, uh, and so that, that happens frequently. And there's a second reason why I introduce myself. And this one's probably more important than the first. And that's that I believe that God has a desire to bring new people into our congregation every Sunday morning. I believe he wants us to be the people who are out singing his praises, not just in a room like this on a Sunday, but sharing who he is on a weekly basis and a daily basis, wherever he takes us. And as that happens, people will be intrigued and they'll show up here. And I want them to be able to know me and you and and each other. And so I hope you'll get into the habit of introducing yourself to new people, that you'll step out of the space that you normally sit in and you'll just take time to say, hey, this is my name. What's your name? I'd love to get to know you. So I hope you'll do that every time we get together. That would be a great thing. Well, I'm so thankful that we get to take a look at the Bible together today. We're going to see some really incredible things from God's Word today. So go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in. And we'll read that passage of Scripture together here in just a minute. But I have a question for you this morning, and then I'm going to illustrate it, and then we'll read that, that, that passage of Scripture because it's what that passage of Scripture is really all about. But have you ever had a problem choosing ultimate goals over immediate desires. Have you ever had a problem doing that? Choosing an ultimate goal over an immediate desire. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. My dad was a heavy man. He was was overweight and he knew it. So he was a big guy. And there was this one moment, uh, well, many moments actually, where uh, it was one of our holidays and there's the dessert table, right, at Thanksgiving. And I catch him at the dessert table for like his second, possibly third trip, but a second trip for sure. And he's got pie on his plate and more pie on his plate. And, you know, because he was a big man and he, he needed dessert, right? We all need dessert. And so he, he puts his fork in the pie and he just looks up from the pie to me and he has this mischievous grin on his face. And he just says, yeah, I'm working, on, I'm working to get skinny and beautiful. I got the beautiful part covered. It's the skinny part that I'm working on. And he takes a big old piece of bite, a big old bite. That's an example of how an ultimate goal conflicts or has tension with sometimes an immediate desire. You've experienced something like that before. Maybe in your finances, you want to be debt-free. You want to be free from the bondage that comes from being in debt all the time. You want to, you want to spend less than you receive, and so that's your ultimate goal. <laughs> Yet, there's this thing that just came out that's brand new. They, they just released the new iPhone or the new iWatch or they've, there's this cool car or there's this bill that just has to be paid or whatever. And so suddenly your immediate desires kind of overcome your ultimate goal to be debt-free and you take out that loan that you wish you hadn't taken out. Or maybe, maybe you think it's, maybe it's education. Maybe you've jumped into school and I've got I to finish this education. And so now you've got all this school debt, ultimate goals versus immediate desires. Maybe it's in your dating relationships. Maybe it's in your dating. We have this desire for physical intimacy. 
All of us have this desire for physical intimacy, and we also have this ultimate goal that we would be able to find this person in our life that we could share the deepest, most significant parts of our life with, including the beauty that is our physical intimacy. And we want to be faithful to one another and faithful in marriage and, and all of these things. That's an ultimate goal, but now you're in this dating relationship and you have this immediate desire And I don't fully understand it, but I know what Scripture tells us is that inside the context of marriage, that 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 physical intimacy between a husband and wife is beautiful and it's blessed and it's a gift from God if you express that desire in the context of marriage. Yet outside of marriage, that, that expression of physical intimacy is, well, the Bible, I would say it like this, it's less than blessed. It actually says it's a fire that will burn you if you're not careful. And so sometimes we have this ultimate goal and there's this tension between our ultimate goals and our immediate desires. And and you've experienced that. I'm sure that you have at some point. And maybe I didn't give an example that you're like, oh, I can relate to that. But I know that you've experienced that, that moment when you have this ultimate goal and there's this immediate desire that, that gets in the way. I want to take a moment to just pause right here and brag on the people who have been historic members of this church. You guys have said, I have this ultimate goal. This ultimate goal is there's this gospel presence right here on Admiral. And I don't want that gospel presence to go away. And so to a large degree, you've set aside some of your immediate desires and some of your immediate preferences specifically so that the gospel work can shine bright right here on Admiral. And if you look around, there are people who are here now who weren't here a few years ago. And there will be another service at 1230 that are people who were here, who, are, who will be here today, who are responding to that gospel light that you are helping shine because you set in front of you this ultimate goal. And you've said this ultimate goal is going to be more important than my immediate desires. And so for those of you who are historic members of this church, great job. And for those of you who are new members to this church, here's my hope and my prayer for you, that you would be like those people, that you would follow in their footsteps and that you would allow the ultimate goals that God sets in front of you to overcome your immediate desires. Not that you need to overcome your immediate desires, but that you need to let your ultimate goals shape the way you express your immediate desires. Some days I eat pie, just like my dad, and some days I don't. And it's because I, too, am working on being skinny and beautiful. (laughs) And just like my father, I've got the beautiful part down. I'm still working on the skinny every meal. I'm working on the skinny. And so so ultimate goals versus immediate desires. I hope that you will choose. That's, That's what I hope you'll do today. I hope you'll figure out through Scripture how to choose an ultimate goal over an immediate desire. So with that in mind, let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Stand with me as we read, uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word. And Really, we're in this series called Transformed, and this is just one more step in what it means for your life to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see it beginning in verse uh, 17, 1, Corinthians, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word of the Lord by which the gospel was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. You may be seated. See, so there's four, four habits, four habits for every believer that I think will help you filter your immediate desires through the lens of your ultimate goals. So every time you have an immediate desire to do something, it's not that we should always avoid that our, our immediate desires or that we should suppress them or that we should oppress them, that we should push them down. It's that we ought to shape our immediate desires through the lens of our ultimate goals. And as we do that, in this passage of Scripture, we see four habits that every believer in Jesus Christ should have to help them rightly understand their immediate desires in light of their ultimate goals. Now, I'm going to pause for just a second because I know in a room like this, it's entirely possible that not everyone in here is a believer in Jesus Christ. And I just want to talk to you for a minute. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you'll keep coming back and that you'll keep looking for the answers to the questions that you have. There are people seated all around you who would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And all the doubts that you have or all the concerns or all the questions that you have, they may not have every answer, but I can tell you that they care about you and they, they care enough to explore those answers with you. And to you, I would say the number one principle you ought to catch today is even if you don't trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, this idea that we should choose our ultimate goals over immediate desires, that your life will be better if you do, that's going to be true for you, whether you follow Jesus or not. That's going to be true for you. These other four habits take that truth and empower it in a way that you can't possibly do it on your own. It takes the power of you and, and transforms it into something supernatural. It transforms it into the power of God. So I hope you'll listen to the rest of these four habits. If, you don't, if you're not a follower of Christ, I hope you'll listen and you'll pay attention because I think they're all relevant to you and for you. But, but also for you, all of these four habits, because you don't follow Christ, are kind of optional. Kind of optional because you don't follow Christ. But for those of you who do follow Christ, these four habits really aren't optional. So to you who aren't followers of Christ, I'd say figure out how to choose ultimate goals over immediate desires. And, and these four habits, if you can catch their meaning, that will empower you to do that. But to you who are believers, to you who claim the name of Jesus, these really aren't options for you. This should be the pattern and the habit of your life. This should just be the way you live. It should be your knee-jerk reaction in every circumstance. These four habits to help you filter your immediate desires through the lens of your ultimate goals. And so here's the first one. The first one is really very simple. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, watch this, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, the word for fear there is not the kind of, oh, I just watched a horror film kind of fear. It's not the thriller kind of somebody just jump scared me when I was playing this video game. It's not that kind of fear. The fear there is a kind of reverential awe that it's talking about. Have you ever had that moment where you were acting one way, maybe you were being silly or being crazy or being stupid, and then suddenly the right person walks in the room? And just because that one person walked in the room, you stand a little straighter, you walk a little taller, you act a little better. Like I can remember when Londa and I were dating, 
I had a, uh, I, I had my phone and she called and I, actually what happened was we had just been out on a date. We were still dating and, and we had, and I thought for sure cause I dropped her off and I came home. So we it'd been like two minutes. We hadn't seen each other for like two minutes. It, it was not that long. And my phone rings and I thought for sure that it was my friend Brian that was calling. And so I answered the phone, Joe's morgue, you stab him, we slab him. I answered it just like that. And suddenly it's Londa on the phone and we're dating and I'm like, oh, I'm so cool. Thank you for calling me. I felt like a complete idiot. And suddenly my whole demeanor changed because I wasn't talking to my friend Brian. I was talking to the girl I was trying to impress. And now suddenly, suddenly I'm acting different. That's, that's kind of a reverential awe, right? Conduct yourself in the way you do things with this reverential awe that God is with you. So, so here's the first habit. In everything you do, you can filter the lens of your, ultimate, of your immediate desires through the lens of ultimate goals if you'll just get into the habit of act, act like God's with you. Act like God is with you because he is. Act like God is with you because he is. Several years ago, my family got to take a trip to Washington, D.C., and it was really cool. While we were there, we have a friend that Londa grew up with named Robert. His job is to be a trumpet player in the Army, in the army Band, in the Army Marching Band. He's stationed at Arlington National Cemetery. And the thing he does every day is he arranges or plays the bugle at funerals for servicemen who have passed away who will be buried there at Arlington National Cemetery. There's 4,000 people buried there, and they do services all the time. And so he's the man who arranges that. And while we were there, he kind of gave us a behind-the-scenes tour of Arlington National Cemetery, and it was such an incredible thing. My kids were a lot younger then. It was five or six, seven years ago, so they were a lot younger. And we got to go see the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And you know what that is. There's an unknown soldier there. It's guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week by men and women who've been selected for this duty. There's only been a handful of instances since it began being guarded that that they stopped guarding it. Even in hurricanes and the worst weather, the coldest weather, they continue to guard that tomb because they want to honor that soldier. And so Robert not only took us to see the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, he took us into the barracks of the men and women who were the soldiers who guard that tomb. And they would come in in their dress uniforms with their, with their service rifle that they would carry with them as they would guard, as they would march that, as they would march that, that, guard, that, that, uh, that, that space. And I was just amazed at the way my children behaved because they went from being these goofy kids who were just playing and picking on one another. We walk into these barracks, and this man in this dress army uniform comes in, and he's got his, man, it's, it's spit and polish, and he just looks fantastic. And all of a sudden, my boys who were picking on each other, they just stopped. And they were just in awe of this soldier who is performing this incredible duty to honor the soldier that's buried in the tomb of the unknown soldier. That is reverential awe. And in Acts, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, if you call on the Father, who with partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in reverential awe. That's your first habit. If you want to filter the lens uh, of, of, your ultimate, of your immediate desires through the lens of your ultimate goals, act like God is with you all the time. Not just in this room. Not just when you're in Sunday school. Now, have you been around that person who um, won't cuss in church, but he cusses at all the other times? 
Um, have you been around that person who acts one way on a Sunday or one way with one, one group of friends and another way with another group of friends? If you act like God is with you always because he is, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you do that. So that's the first idea. The second idea is this. Act like God redeemed you. As a believer in Jesus Christ, act like God redeemed you because he has. That's the next habit. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, redeemed is not one of those words that we use very frequently, but it's really very simple. Uh, how many of you have ever redeemed a coupon? Anybody? Nobody? You, you, okay, you've redeemed. You've traded something that has one kind of value for something else of value. How many of you have ever used a gift card? You've, you, right. You've been given something of value, and now you take it to the store, and you redeem the value of that gift card so that you can get something else that you want. When the Bible says that you have been redeemed, your sin, the mistakes that you've made, the deliberate disobedience of your life, who you are as a person is broken because of the things that you've done and because of the things that have been done to you. And that breaks your relationship with people and it's broken your relationship with God. And the Bible teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There's no opportunity for redemption. It says that you owe a debt that you can't possibly pay. And it's that sin debt, that brokenness that you have inside your heart, that brokenness that you feel every morning when you wake up, that brokenness that you have is real. And it's real because of the sin in your life. Yet for a believer in Christ, for a follower of Christ, know this, knowing, verse 18, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from, from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ and of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were redeemed from something. You were redeemed from your sin. That means those immediate desires that you have, you don't have to give in to those. You can choose when you give in to temptation and when you don't. You have a choice to give in to temptation or not. You have a choice whether or not you obey the desires of the flesh or the desires of the spirit. You've been redeemed from your sin. Actually, in, in the book of James and in the book of Romans, in Romans it talks about the law of sin and death. It says how we're all slaves to our sin and we can't help but do the wrong things because it's just sort of in us. It means that we're not just bad. <clears throat> we're not just bad because we make mistakes. We're bad because we like it. We're bad because we're good at it. We sin because, hey, I just don't want to do what my parents say. Hey, I just don't want to do what you tell me to do. I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. I want to do it my way. I want what I want when I want it, and I want what I want right now. You know, that's all of us. All of us do that at some point. That's the law of sin and death at work in your life. Yet, in the book of James... In the book of James, it tells us that you are freed from the law of sin and death so that you can be obedient to, your, to Christ. That's called the law of liberty. It's James chapter 1, James chapter 2. It talks about the law of liberty, how you're free so you can. You don't have to trip over the same temptation over and over and over again because you've been freed from your sin. Notice what it says. You've not been freed 
from your sin with something corruptible like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Some of you experienced every day the consequences not of your sin, but of the sin of your parents that came before you. You've been wounded by, you've been hurt by, you're still trying to overcome the sin of your parents before you. And this passage tells us you don't have to live by the world's rules anymore. You haven't been freed by the traditions of your fathers, something corruptible like that. You've not been freed with silver or gold. You've not been redeemed with something like a little piece of plastic that has a little numerical value on it. You've been freed from sin, but the purchase price of you was the blood of Jesus Christ. So you've been freed from sin, but you've been freed with the blood of Jesus, which is perfect and spotless and without blemish. It's of insurpassable value. And that's how he looks at you. And it's how he looks at you. And those generational sins, the addiction that's broken your family for years and the abuse that's broken your family for years and the problems that have taken the name and the reputation of your family and transformed it into a byword, transformed it into the kind of thing that's more like a a cuss word than it is something that's, that's something to be proud of or to be honored by. Those things that have tarnished your family name, you don't have to be the one who lives like that anymore. You can be the generation that breaks the power of that sin, not because you're so strong and not because your character is so great and not because you're so smart and they're so dumb, but because you've been purchased with a price and it was the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed from your sin with the blood of Jesus by Jesus. And because of that, you can live free under the law of liberty and the name of who your family is can be transformed forever. It can change forever because God can break those generational sins. Just because your parents were abusive doesn't mean you have to be abusive. Just because your parents or your dad was an addict doesn't mean you have to be an addict. Just because, you know, as parents, whether you're parents to be or, you're, or you have parents now, you're either going to reject what they teach you or you're going to receive what they teach you, good, bad, and ugly. And you know what? You have a choice. And for those of you who are followers of Christ, your choice is even better because your choice is a redeemed choice. Your choice is a choice that comes through holiness rather than through brokenness. You get to reject what your parents teach or receive what your parents teach. And the end story is the story that you write and it can be written that in my generation, in your generation, I was redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And because I'm redeemed, I don't have to live that way anymore. So the abuse and the addiction and the habits and the hurts and the hang-ups and all of those things that have caused you the deepest amount of pain in your family, you can be the generation that sees that change because of what Christ has done for you. So that's the second thing. First, we act like God's with us because he is. You act like you've been redeemed because you have. The third thing is you need to act like you have an influential purpose. Act like you have an influential purpose. (laughs) Because you do. Look at this, verse uh, 20. Verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It's talking about Jesus. But was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, 
Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Verse 22 is such an interesting verse. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, fervently, again, another word we don't use very often. It just means earnest, honest, passionate love, fervently. That's the way we should love one another. But what's interesting about the verse is that Peter says the word love, he says it twice. Twice he tells us to love people. Look look at it, verse uh, verse 22. Uh, since, Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. Why would you say that twice? Hey, I love you, Londa. No, really, I love you. <laughs> it's almost like you're trying to convince someone. That's not what Peter was trying to do. There, in, the, in the original Greek language, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just happen to know how to use a dictionary. But in the original Greek language, there are several different words for the word love. And I think for Peter in particular, those different meanings of the word love are really special to him. The first time he says, love one another, love... In in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, that word love there in the Greek is the word phileo. It's actually where we get the word Philadelphia from. Remember, Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. It's known as the city of brotherly love because phileo is the Greek word for brotherly love. It's the kind of love that you have for a brother or sister. It's the kind of love you have for the the kind of friendship that you would have that makes it kind of a a friendship that is like a brother or sister uh, kind of relationship. And so the first time Peter says, I want you to love one another, he's saying you should just kind of love, love one another like brothers and sisters. You know, I'd be willing to bet that even even though the number of people in this room is not massive, I'd be willing to bet that there's people in this room that you don't know their name yet, and you haven't heard their story yet. Well, what a great way to express brotherly love for one another, to introduce yourself, to ask somebody else about their story, to learn who they are and what winds them up, what gets them excited, why'd they show up here today, what's their family like? To invite those kinds of conversations, what a great way to express brotherly love. To do that when you're out in the community, wherever you are, to to express a genuine interest in people. And instead of being focused on your goals and your desires, maybe to spend a little bit of time in every interaction realizing that God brought that person into your circle for a moment and you have an influential purpose. In that moment, you have the opportunity to love them with a brotherly love that just says, I'm interested in you. Not in a weird way and not in a dating way and not in an awkward way, but just says, hey, I noticed you're in the room. You're in my circle. Tell me about yourself. To take some time with people to experience and to express brotherly love for one another. But Peter doesn't stop there. Act like you have an influential purpose. You do. God's brought people into your space for a minute, for a moment, and for a reason. And, and the reason is so that you can express some brotherly love. But he doesn't stop there. Look at that. Verse 22 again. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. The second kind of love there is it's a totally different word for love. It's the word agape. The word agape is it's the big God kind of love. It's the love that says, I choose you no matter what. It's the kind of love that says, even if you're unfaithful, even if you're unkind, even if you're a jerk, I love you anyway. I love you with, a, with the kind of love that's not about me. 
and it's not about you. It's not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not loving you because of the choices that you've made. I'm loving you because of a choice that I made. I made a choice to love you no matter what. Peter says, love people with a brotherly love. And then he looks at it and says, in this group right here, right now, love one another with the, with the love that says, I choose you, no matter what. That's the kind of love that God's given to you. Do you realize that on the worst day of your life, when you've committed the worst sin you'll ever commit, when you've looked at God and you've essentially written him off, when you're in that mood to just cuss at him and tell him what a bad guy is because you've just been so disappointed and so hurt and so broken, do you know what God says to you? He says, I love you anyway. And when you say, I reject you, God, God says, I love you anyway. And I choose you. And when you've been completely unfaithful to God, God goes, I'm going to be faithful to you. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verses 2, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 are really interesting verses. Verse 3 says, it says, but, but what if some do not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let, uh, let God be true and every man a liar that you may be justified in your words and, and that you may overcome when you are judged. God will be faithful to you even when you're unfaithful to him because he has agape love for you. He chooses you anyway. You've been given an influential person, purpose, to be the person who would carry that brotherly love everywhere you go and to share that agape love, the I choose you kind of love with anyone God puts into your path to share it with. And I think this was meaningful to Peter. I think this was meaningful to Peter because Peter was one of those disciples that walked with Jesus until he didn't. And you remember when Jesus was taken to the cross, on the night before Jesus was taken to the cross, he looked at Peter and he said, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter did exactly that. Before Christ was even put on the cross, people came to Peter and said, hey, I think you, you sound like a Galilean. I bet you were with Jesus, right? No, heck no, I wasn't with Jesus. Three times he does that. With each time he's asked, he gets a little more mad and a little more upset. He cusses a little bit. No, I wasn't with Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And after Jesus dies, before Jesus rises from the dead, Peter's so depressed and he's so discouraged and he feels so let down that he essentially says, I'm quitting the ministry. And Peter was this influential guy, so he goes back to what he knew before. He was a fisherman before, so he goes fishing. And you know who goes to fish with him? All the disciples that he had influence over. He's such an influential person. They go fishing with him. And Jesus, resurrected, shows up. He shows up on the shore, and the disciples are like, I think that can't be. That looks like, I think that's, that looks just like Jesus. And they immediately start rowing the boat back to shore. But Peter being Peter, because he was kind of the obstinate one, he was the, he was the one that put his foot in his mouth. He would jump, he would leap before he looked, you know. Instead of waiting for the boat to get rowed back to shore, he jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore because he's so excited to see Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, it's this incredible reunion but still on the inside, Peter still feels broken and lost because he knows he's rejected and disappointed Christ. He knows he gave up. And Jesus does this very loving thing, this very loving, very kind thing. He restores Peter. And you know how he does it? He asks three questions. Peter denied Jesus three times. 
So Jesus asked Peter three questions. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Phileo? Do you phileo me? Brotherly love? Peter's answered, sure. Yes, you know I love you. Brotherly love? Absolutely. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Second time. Hey, Peter, really? Phileo, do you love me? Brotherly love? Come on, Jesus, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. And then the last time, the last time Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Agape. Then feed my sheep. Do you choose me no matter what? I think when Peter wrote these words, we should love one another with phileo, a brotherly love. We should love one another fervently with a pure heart, agape love. I don't think he could avoid remembering that moment. Now, it's strange to me that Jesus kept saying, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter was a fisherman. It's like, hey, I'm a fisherman. I love fish. I'm not sure about sheep. Some of them stink. But that wasn't the point. If you love me, feed my sheep. You have an influential purpose. You should act like it. You have an influential purpose to love people with a brotherly love. And here's the last thing. If you want to filter your immediate desires in such a way so that you can figure out how to manage your immediate desires to meet your ultimate goals, act like God is with you because he is. Act like you've been redeemed because you have. Act like you have an influential purpose because you do. And act like every moment matters because it does. Look at those last few verses. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word of the Lord by which the gospel was preached to you. Go back up to verse 24. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. You ought to act like every moment matters because it does. You realize that that generational sin that has shaped your family name, that didn't happen because of one giant mistake that someone in your past made. It didn't happen because of one big decision that they made. It happened one decision at a time. It happened one drink at a time. It happened one debt at a time. It happened one bad word at a time. One terrible conversation at a time. One moment of anger at a time. Act like every moment matters because it does. You know, that's actually how the reputation of your name is built. It's built with one decision, one moment at a time. And for those of us who are believers, the name that we carry is the name that is above every name. It's the name of Jesus. And the name that you carry, your first name, your middle name, your last name, it doesn't have to mean what what it meant in previous generations. It can mean something more. Actually, it's one of the things about scripture that I find fascinating people's names in scripture were so important. When you look at Peter, like even 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter's here, he's, 
he's an amazing leader. And when he goes to write his book, the first thing he says about himself is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's saying, this is who I am. This is the meaning of my name. I am Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, when, when James goes to write his book, James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he immediately uses his name as a, as a standard to say, this is who I am. I'm going to act like every moment matters, and I'm going to act like I've been redeemed because I have, and I'm going to act like I have an influential purpose because it's been given to me by God, and I'm going to, I'm going to act like God is with me because I know that he is. And when it came time to express any authority he had in writing, he started not with, not with his authority, but with where his authority came from. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. King Solomon, who was one of the kings of Israel, the second, third king of Israel, most successful king of Israel ever. During King Solomon's reign, Israel was the largest it would ever be. During his reign, they were the most successful they would ever be. There was no war. There was complete peace in Israel during Solomon's reign. The Bible says that things were so prosperous during Solomon's time that they stopped counting silver because there was just so much silver to go around. This is how prominent Solomon Solomon was known. He's written in the Bible. He's known as the wisest man to ever live. Yet in Proverbs chapter 1, when Solomon goes to write his book of wisdom, he starts by saying, Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. He was known by his family name because he was filtering his immediate desires through that lens of what do I want my name to mean? Whose son am I? By what authority do I do this? And then you get to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul does exactly the same thing. Now, Paul had this incredible story. He was a murderer who'd been transformed by the gospel. He had hunted down and hurt and killed Christians. And then he became a Christian. In other places in his story, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and I was taught by the best teachers, and I lived in all the right places, and I had all the right connections, and I was on my way to be something big in the Jewish faith, but I've counted all these things lost because I want to know Christ. And in Romans chapter 1, when Paul starts to write, he takes it a step further than all these other people when, it, when he's talking about what does my name mean and by what authority do I say all these things. He says this. He says in Romans chapter 1, I'm Paul a bondservant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, now watch this. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus. Paul, Peter, James, Solomon, they identified with the name of Christ. And they wanted their name and their reputation to be built not on who they were, but on who he is. So what's the reputation that you've built? Are you building an, a family name? Are you building the kind of family name that's built around the gospel? Are you the generation that will break the abuse, that will break the addiction, that will break the, the bad decisions? Are you the generation that will do that? 
You know, every week that we've talked about these things this year, we've given what we call the Mission Life Challenge. And I think it would be a worthy thing for you to sit down with your family this week and talk about the meaning of your name. What do you want your family name to mean? You ought to have a family meeting about it. If you're single, you ought to sit down and write down, here's my intent, here's my ultimate goal. I want my family name to mean this. And in spite of what I've experienced in my family before or because of what I've experienced in my family before, here are some qualities of character. Here are some things about my relationship with Christ. This is, I think it'd be great if you, if you have a big family, if, if you're a family that's huge or a family of one, you ought to sit down together and have that conversation about what, what, does, what does our name, what should it mean? You ought to have that family meeting and sit down and write that down. If I were to sound a little bit like Paul or James or any of those guys, I might say that I am Chad, son of Charles of the house Balthrop. And some of you have heard me tell the story about my dad a little bit, about how he was adopted and he inherited a name from his adoptive family. My, my grandfather was Oval Edward Balthrop. He's Charles Edward Balthrop. I'm Chad Edward Balthrop. My son has the name Cademan Edward Balthrop. That's a lot of CEBs. Uh, that really confused the Postal Service, and that's awesome. But I can remember this idea that I, I, I picked up from my dad, that for him, that name of Balthrop, because he was adopted, he was a gift. And one of the things I picked up from him is that he didn't treat his name simply as a gift. He treated it as a stewardship. He treated his name as a responsibility, and he wanted to be able to he wanted to be able to hand me that name, that name of Balthrop, better than he received it. And now he's challenged me and my brother to, and my, my mom's done the same thing. She's sitting right here. This is my mom, Janie Balthrop. She's done the same thing. I've had a lot of great things from my parents to receive and to pass on to my kids. I've received this family name of Balthrop, and now I have the opportunity to pass it on to another generation stronger and better than it was before. So, what are you doing with your family name? What are you doing with the name of Christ? Are you living in a way that your immediate desires are filtered through the lens of the ultimate goal that God's given you to be his child? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these moments that we have together. I pray that you would help us to remember that you are with us always, that you've redeemed us and given us an influential purpose. You've redeemed us through the blood of your son, Jesus. You've given us that influential purpose, and I pray that you'll help us to recognize that every moment matters. And because of that, would you help us today? Would you help us to honor your name and honor the name of the family that you've given to us? Would you help us as a family? God, there are people in the room right now where abuse and addiction and other bad decisions simply need to be broken. They don't need to be generational sins anymore. So Father, would you break that in this generation, in my generation, in my family, with these people? Father, would you do that for us? Father, if there's someone in the room today who's spent a lifetime tarnishing their name and the name of Christ, would you give them the courage to repent? Would you give them the boldness to confess? Would you allow them the strength to go to members of their family and to look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Let's figure out a way for us never to do this again. Father, would you do that in the hearts of people today? 
Father, for someone in the room today who's far from you, who came in today not really knowing what to expect or not really trusting or believing all of what it is that we're talking about, but knowing that there's a need there and there are questions they have, I pray that you would answer their questions, that you would do it through me and through the other people in the room, that you would do it through your word. And if today they heard your voice, I pray that they would very simply surrender and recognize the life and the love that you have for them if they'll simply trust in you. So help them, Father, to place their faith in you today. Father, let us be the people who pursue you on a daily basis. We ask these things in Jesus' name.